James 1, beginning at verse 19. This is God's holy and infallible word. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's God's word for us tonight. So this is our our second just our second sermon in James, um, and, and before looking really in more detail at the text, I want to back up and just give a little bit uh, further background to the book of James. Um, who is this James? There were four guys that we know of named James in the New Testament. This James is not the one who is one of the twelve. Remember James and John, the son of Zebedee. But it's almost certainly the person who was the leader at a really big first church council, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And Paul in Galatians 2 verse 9 calls this James uh, a pillar of the church. Which is, that's interesting. Even more interesting is that... um, is that he happened to be the brother of Jesus. And that, that's kind of interesting to think about. Mary and Joseph were his parents, so maybe he went fishing with his brother Jesus as a boy at the Sea of Galilee. Maybe he worked side by side with Jesus in dad's carpentry shop. It, it's pretty cool to think about Jesus as your big brother. James was probably the oldest of Jesus' younger brothers, uh, because he's first in the list of Jesus' brothers. You'll find a list of maybe maybe three or four of Jesus' brothers if you look at Matthew 13, 55. Uh, James is listed first, so we think he's the oldest. At first, James and his other brothers didn't believe in Jesus, and even they challenged Jesus once, but James clearly came around at some point. And, and so what's cool about this book, Jesus, James apparently learned some things uh, from his big brother, and uh, he wrote them down in this letter for the building up of the church, even our church tonight. In the history of the church, this little book has not always fared well. Martin Luther is like the great reformer he called James an epistle of straw, and that was a cut down. He, he, he thought it was lightweight, you know, like straw, just kind of lightweight, there's nothing to do it. He thought it was a lightweight book, and, and he looked down on it. 
Martin Luther was known to be a really opinionated guy, and he would say strong things like this. I'm sure he believed that the book was inspired, but he somehow thought it was a lesser book. And I don't think that's really a great way to look at Scripture. I think he should have kept his mouth shut on that one. Very interesting, though, some of the the reasons he didn't love this book are exactly reasons why many Christians today do love it. So there's several characteristics of the book that that make a lot of people today kind of excited about James, but not Martin Luther. One, the book is very practical. It's not nearly as doctrinal and theological as the rest of the New Testament letters. Luther didn't like that it talked a lot about our deeds and our actions because he's the guy who rediscovered for the church justification by faith alone. And he lived in a time where people in the church were thinking they could get saved by what they did. So his big emphasis was on justification by faith alone. And he didn't care for all this talk about what we should do, but it's that practical nature that that a lot of people today like because, let's face it, a lot of Christians are a little shy or scared or, or bored about doctrine. They shouldn't be, but they are. And then for... That means for some people, James comes in like a breath of fresh air because it's so practical. And in fact, this little book has more commands in it than any other New Testament book. James is like, you should do this, you should do that. And it's very practical. A lot of people find that helpful. Second, James is very concise. James doesn't drag out thoughts which is perfect for all us short attention span people today. It seems like people have very short attention spans. Um, it, 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 James makes a point and that it moves right along. And it reminds us of Old Testament wisdom literature in that, like Proverbs, where there's all these little sayings and doesn't like elaborate, these great little truths, and then it moves on. That's kind of what James is like. Third, James is filled with metaphors and illustrations. Remember two weeks ago with Pastor Matthew, all that visual language in the first half of James 1. And that's a lot of people like that today because since the advent of TV and movies and other media, people think more visually than they used to. And people in the church, I found, tend to like illustrations James is filled with illustrations for us. And so a lot of the characteristics of the book are exactly the type of things that many Christians today find appealing. Um, And and I think, too, a study of James balances things out for us as a church a little bit because we just finished John, and John is one of the most theological books of the New Testament. So now we're in one of the most practical books of the New Testament. Our verses today, verses 26 and 27, the last two verses of the chapter are the key. And what they do is they give us three goals for living out the faith. The subtitle of this sermon series is James, a faith that works. Well, here we have three pieces of evidence that tell us whether our faith is working whether it's getting worked out in our lives. The first is controlling our tongue, verse 26. 
The second is helping those in need. That's the first part of verse 27. The very last part of 27, 3, keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, guarding our hearts, keeping ourselves pure. Those are the three main themes that we're going to get throughout the rest of the book. Controlling our tongue, helping the needy, filtering our hearts of worldliness. Chapter 2 is especially about caring for others. Most of chapter 3 is about the tongue. And then the rest of the book through chapter 5 is about holy living. Our verses just start to touch on those themes, those three goals of the Christian life. And then our verses also give us the mechanism for how we can reach those goals of a working faith, those three goals. The theme of caring for those in need in verse 27a, it's not really in the rest of our text except at the very end. So we won't focus much on that tonight. But it's worth saying for now that helping the down and out is a tremendous theme in all of Scripture. It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's in Jesus' ministry, you know, especially where he says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And so true faith, a real faith, includes this emphasis on caring for the vulnerable in society. And it's interesting how James words it here. He says, caring for the widow and orphan, and he just uses those as examples of the most poorly off people in society of his day. Caring for them is pure and faultless religion. And that's interesting because when you think of being pure and faultless in the faith, you think first of all of your own pure heart and your mind being pure and your relationship to God. But James brings up others. A pure religion cares for others. There's going to be more on this as the book goes on. Our text starts with verse 19 about the tongue. We're called to have a readiness to listen. We're called to be restrained in our speaking. We're called not to be quick-tempered. Rarely is a great talker in life also a great listener. And, and the Lord wants His children to be great listeners. I don't think that the Bible is just shutting down talkative people. But I also think we need to take what James says seriously. He says, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Publius, the ancient Greek, said, I have often regretted my speech, but I've never regretted my silence. In verse 26, we have one of those many illustrations of James. And he talks about keeping a tight rein on the tongue. Um, and there are some folks that just have a lot of trouble keeping a tight rein on their tongue. Uh, there's a man once working in a produce department, and he was asked by a lady if, if uh, she was asked if she could buy a half a head of lettuce. He replied, a half a head? Are you serious? God grows these in whole heads, and that's how we sell them. 
You mean she persisted that after all the years I, I've shopped here, you won't sell me a half a head of lettuce? Look, he said, if you like, I'll ask the manager. She indicated she'd appreciate it. So this young man marched to the front of the store, and he's like, you won't believe this. There's this lame-braided idiot of a lady back there who wants to know if she can buy a half head of lettuce. And he noticed the manager gesturing and, and turned around to see the lady standing right behind him, obviously followed him to the front of the store. The ni- and then he said, and this nice lady was wondering if, if she could buy the other half. Later that day, uh, the manager cornered this young man and said, that was the finest example of thinking on your feet I've ever seen. Where did you learn that? And he's like, I grew up in Fairview, and if you know anything about Fairview, you know it's known for its great hockey teams and its ugly women. The manager's face immediately flushed, and he interrupted, my wife is from Fairview. And which hockey team did she play for, said the employee. (laughs) Keeping a tight rein, which this guy and, and some of us perhaps really have trouble with, that tight rein is it's equestrian imagery. And English students know that means relating to what? Horseback riding. Maybe we have a horseback rider or two. I know of a couple in our church. The biblical interpreter Kent Hughes says that if we've ever sat on 1,500 pounds of restless bone and muscle and then hung on at a full gallop, well, then we get the idea of what James is talking about. James is saying we have a horse in our mouth. The tongue has that level of power and it must be bridled or it's going to get out of our control. When does our tongue gallop like an out-of-control horse? Well, when, when we're gossiping, when we use profanity, when we speak with anger, when we lie, perhaps most of all when we complain or criticize, our tongues can spread absolute poison. James says, if anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Those are sharp words from God's Word about how we use words. We move ahead to verse 20, and we find that what we do with our tongue is connected to our righteousness with God. Literally, the verse says, such a person can't control his tongue, does not work the righteousness of God. So how we speak to others is connected to our relationship with God. Our life with God, you think of righteousness, it's not just about our prayer life with God. It's not just about reading our Bible, but it's connected to our life with people. Are we righteous before our Lord? with our speech, with our tongue. Next, James talks about us being pure from the world. That's verse 21. Helping the poor and needy, not much on that in our text, more later in the book. Keeping our tongue under control, a little bit of that here, more 
later on in the book, and then this purity from the world, verse 21, that third big theme of the book. Get rid of moral filth. It's the same word actually used in chapter 2, verse 2, where James says there, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and then a poor man comes in in shabby clothes. So it's moral shabbiness, moral filth. The Puritan Thomas Manton tells us that this word was used, and don't get too grossed out, but this word was used to talk about the filthiness of ulcers. And it was used to talk about the nastiness of the body when we sweat. So that's kind of gross. When I was in seminary, I played basketball with a group of guys three days a week. Uh, We would play, we were pretty barbaric, we'd play shirts and skins. Uh, It would be the worst to guard someone who is a skin because as the game went on, they'd get sweaty, especially the bigger guys. You'd hardly want to guard them because you'd get slimed with their sweat. Having some other guys sweat on you is not a good thing. Well, the person of faith, James is saying, we do not want to have the grossness, the filth of the world all over us either. We want to keep a healthy distance from that filth. James talks about the evil that's so prevalent, and one translation says evil that's ever abounding. Another word translation talks about the rank growth of evil. And that evil ever abounding, boy, that's, that's, that's sort of obvious when we look at our world. Um, remember last week, Mac Wiener talked about music um, and keeping ourselves free from the world in terms of current music, and he's right about that. We, we, could, we could point out many problems in the world, and we should sometimes, but I think James is encouraging us to look to our own hearts. Because, you know, after all, the world will be worldly. It's in its nature. This is not a surprise. I think it's funny sometimes when we act all in horror and shock when the world is acting just like you'd expect it would. It's the world. The world doesn't love God. The world doesn't have morals. The world doesn't love God in His ways. Our calling is especially to keep the evil there from growing in our hearts and lives so that ever-abounding, that rank growth is talking especially about evil in our own hearts that we don't want to be growing. You know, and if you're like other believers, then, then sometimes you've maybe dug out weeds in one place in your heart, found some problems and sin in another spot, work on those, and then the weeds in that other spot in your life reappear again, and, and we thought we'd gotten rid of them. And so to prevent that growth of, of, of evil in the world, a Christian is basically like a vigilant gardener. You and I, we've got to live with, with a garden hoe in hand and, and be ready to work against the old nature whenever it, it tries to settle in. And that garden imagery that leads us, I mentioned that also in our verses, there's sort of an introduction to the three themes of James, but also the mechanism for how a faith works itself in life. The end of verse 21 talks about the Word planted in us. 
And the Word is mentioned in verse 22, verse 23 and following. We're called to accept the Word humbly. This is how we live the faith out. Meekly. And and that's a key to a life where our faith is active and working. So this isn't a meekness or humility towards others right now. James is talking about a meekness towards God, a meekness towards His Word. This has to do with our spirit towards God's Word. We're called to have a spirit which says yes to whatever God's Word commands. John Calvin says we're to have a mind disposed to learn. It means we come to God's Word with a teachable spirit. And so, friends, humbly accept the Word planted in you. We humbly listen when we read God's Word, when we hear it faithfully taught through Christian teachers. And then James talks about this person who looks in the mirror as a way to talk about the importance of God's Word in our lives. And looking in the mirror here literally means to gaze at, uh, to pour over. You know, sometimes we look very intently in the mirror before leaving for school or for work or for dinner out, making sure the hair is okay, there's no dirt on your face, no little birdies in your eyes, no stuff between the teeth. We're asked to picture someone who's intently gazing in God's Word, checking out very carefully, meditating on it. But then, what good does it do to pour over the Word If you go out and you forget it and you don't live by it, instead, look intently, says James, into the perfect law. I think he says perfect law there because law refers to God's Word, but it especially gets at God's Word for morality, for right and wrong, for how to live. That's what God's Word law gives us. We gaze at it and then we don't forget it. We look intently and obey. James is filled with commands. Do this, don't do this. Um, and even our verses are filled with that. And that can, that's a challenge. That can be tough sometimes. You know, because, because we think of all these things. We think of our own speech and we think of the purity of our heart or sometimes the lack of it, right? Um, how are we doing caring for those in need around us? And we think, boy, James, he, he had it pretty easy. I mean, he grew up with the man who had these traits perfectly embodied in his life. He grew up with the Son of God. He had Jesus as his big brother. Boy, if only we had Jesus as our big brother, it sure would make it easier But think about it. God has adopted us into his family. Jesus is our big brother in a very real sense. A verse that's key for this whole book is just before our verses, and it's verse 18. And we read there that the Father chose to give us new birth. That means he adopted us 
into the family. He took us out of that line of the serpent we've been talking about in the mornings, and he adopted us into the family of God. And then the father's firstborn, Jesus, died and rose again to make it possible for us to have the new life and live it. And in the strength of our big brother, we can achieve these three goals. You think of it, these three areas of the Christian life that, that this book really focuses on. If we could control our tongue better, if we could filter our hearts of impurities, if we could focus on others, boy, wouldn't that make for just a beautiful, God-glorifying life? Yes, it would. And yes, we can start achieving these goals as we live based on the Word of God to the glory of the Father through the finished work of the Son and with the help every day of the Holy Spirit. Amen.